Welcome to the TAGT Podcast. Come along as we work to connect the GT community and explore new ways to meet the unique needs of gifted individuals. This is the TAGT Podcast. This podcast was recorded at the TAGT Annual Conference, Gift Ed 22. Hello and welcome to the Texas Association for the Gifted and Talented Podcast. I'm your host, Michael Fluche. A special thank you to our sponsor, Renzuli Learning. Check them out and get your free trial at renzulilearning.com. Today, we're chatting with award-winning teacher, trainer, and consultant, Matt Wells. Based in Houston, Matt is a past president of STAT and TABT and winner of numerous teaching awards, including NABT's Outstanding Biology Teacher Award for Texas and the TMA's Butler Award for Science Teaching. A parent of a twice exceptional gifted student who struggled in school, Matt is interested in what parents and teachers can do to stimulate the best parts of gifted students' brains and help them excel both in school and in life. Welcome, Matt. It's glad to be here. Thank yeah. you for having me. Yeah, we're so glad you're here. Is your TAGT Gift Ed 22 experience going well so far? Yeah, having a great time so far. Been in some excellent sessions. I'm quite inspired. Yeah, we're excited to have you. You are presenting at several sessions and you've got so many interesting topics that you you are covering and so we want to explore that and what you're talking about but uh, let me go back to your bio here for a second you are interested in stimulating the best parts of students brains uh, that stuck out to me <laughs> what do you mean by that and, and how do we do that so i mean my background's in science um and i love the sort of neurology of learning like mm. how do kids actually get stuff stored in their brains particularly gifted students who are kind of neurodivergent, they have unusual ways of thinking, stuff gets stored and you know manipulated in very unusual ways in gifted students. So uh, that has always fascinated me, uh, especially having a son who was gifted as well and a daughter who was not identified gifted but just learned in a very different way. Their brains were so obviously different. Um, I just found that fascinating because as a teacher, you know, we want to try and check all the boxes and get all the kids, but it's, man, it's hard to do because our brains are so unique. So I've spent years and years, uh, I don't read a lot of nonfiction, but when I do, it's almost always something to do with the mm -hmm. neurology or something to do with uh, how the brain is impacted by different kinds of stimulus. And I think that's one of the great things that you bring to the table in terms of you're, you're a teacher and you have that mindset and we have a lot of teachers listening out there and probably connect with that of like, man, I've also wondered a little bit about how the brain works and why that's important. Maybe tell me a little bit about where that came from in the midst of um, when you were a teacher and maybe mm. starting to see the impact of learning that as you've worked that out with your kids. Yeah, I mean, I remember, I mean, doing teacher training. I remember learning about information processing theory where uh, you had to, you know, it was all about this idea of we've got inputs and then you kind of rehearse them in short-term memory, and then they get encoded into long-term memory, but if you don't recall them, they disappear. And so I had that sort of background, and so I always tried to make sure that I did something that was engaging for my kids uh, at the start of a lesson, some kind of hook uh, that would get them uh, engaged. But particularly with gifted students, I would notice like their attention would just drift off somewhere else. And, and what I've learned now is that attention is always on. You know, I'd be constantly telling kids, hey, pay attention, pay attention. They are paying attention. The question is, where is their attention? It's always on. It's, it's called, I think it's called load theory, information load theory, something like that. It's this idea that the brain is always paying attention. But the challenge mm -hmm. we've got as teachers now is 
where is their attention? Is it on what we want it to be on or not? And with gifted students, we've got a real challenge there because they're, um, we want them to pursue their passions, their dreams, their interests. But we've also got to manage a whole classroom of kids too. And so there's this sort of challenge, this sort of juxtaposition of we want them to pursue wherever their brains want them to go. But we've also got to manage that learning environment neurologically. So I think for me, um, I, I think I've, particularly being a parent, I think it has informed me a little bit that, man, kids' brains really are different. And uh, I've just got to make sure I set an environment to where they've all got a shot. You know, they've all got a shot at accessing what they need to. And I want to go back to that struggle that you just brought up that I think is pretty important, too, of having a best practice maybe pedagogically in terms of like, hey, I know having kids pursue their interests and their inquiry and leading that, there's, there's, that's super important, but also that struggle of you got a classroom full of kids and how do you manage that? How do you build <laughs> structures around that? I bet a lot of teachers are listening to that and going, I feel that pain for sure. Yeah, and I, I wish I could, uh, I had all of the answers on how to fix that because I'd probably be a very wealthy man if I could, <laughs> if I could write the response to how to fix that. But I mean, I think just in terms of things, I think managing attention for gifted students is really, really important. That, okay. That's one of the things, because if you can hook it just enough uh, to where the thing that you are excited about as the teacher and the content that you want them to be excited about is, is interesting enough, well, then they, they will deploy all of their neurological faculties into pursuing that. But it, it's got to mean something to them. There's got to be some sort of relevance or hook or interest or just shock and awe, so, something mm -hmm. that kind of redirects their thoughts onto the content that we're required to teach. And so I, I try to do that. You'll have to ask my appraisers and to find out if I'm doing a decent job or not. But. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. And Okay, so then... That conversation then becomes, and this is one of the things that you're talking about in your presentations, is getting that attention in light of what we've all just been through the mm. past two or three years in a post or, or in a COVID just happening type world, right? Um, Let's go with post-COVID. I post -COVID, like that. That sounds better. I'm not sure the right phraseology <laughs> there. Um, but yeah, why do you think that that's so important, focusing in on attention and the impact of that? for gifted students oh, yeah. uh, or students in gifted services right now. Yeah, well, so I think, I mean, in a normal classroom, it was difficult enough to rein in um, some of our gifted students' interest and get, it, get them hooked in a, just a normal classroom. But when we shifted to online learning, I think it got much more challenging mm. uh, because it, it was very difficult to differentiate. It wasn't impossible, but it was difficult to do that. And of course, if a kid is sitting at home in a place that's already surrounded by distraction, and they've got a device that is going to be constantly funneling distractions at them. It just made it much, much harder uh, for us to kind of focus that attention on where we wanted it to be. Um, and I feel like a lot of students did get into some bad habits. Uh, I mean, I know I've experienced in my classroom um, that even students that I may have had years before in a previous grade level, and they're back now post-COVID, uh, in a classroom, and wow, what like what happened to this child? You know, and the and the obviously their capacity is still there. The their IQ has not changed or any of those kinds of things. But what has changed is their ability to manage their own focus. And so one of the things that really interested me post COVID was um, like how how do we rein it back in? How how do we how do we get kids to shine their flashlight, which is really what that first stage of attention is, onto what we want them to to look at with their with their thoughts, uh, and then keep it there. And then how do we 
after we've got the flashlight shining on that stuff, how do we get them to write it on the whiteboard of their short-term memory? Because it is like a whiteboard. It's got disappearing ink. You know, it doesn't stay there long. So we've got to, at teachers, I think, have got to jump through a lot more hoops now to do what social media companies do, which is hack their attentional vulnerabilities. We need to do what uh, you know, Instagram and TikTok does best, and that is hack the attentional vulnerabilities of our kids. Yeah. So, uh, and, and I think they, they, they really need to be reined back into the real world of a classroom. You know, that the virtual school had a lot of strengths to it, but I think the real world, um, it's just a very different place. A lot of them are going to be going into a workplace as well, where they're going to be dealing with real people. <laughs> all day long as well. So part of their attention is not just on the sort of academic stuff um, and the psychological part, but it's social too. They're being aware of the people around them and the climate of the room. Those are things that we all kind of lost, that social connection, the social glue, the, the norms of a real-world classroom. And, um, you know, gifted kids can be impulsive. They can, you know, yeah. most of my blurters are usually my gifted students. Um, uh, and But not just with verbally. They, they just, they are... Their emotions and intensities can often drive them to actions that aren't always conducive to the learning environment. Uh, And I think COVID, those three years of being away from that, uh, like who was watching them? Who was managing that? Who was providing the social cues to say this behavior is okay, this is not? Um, And so that's kind of what got me thinking post-COVID. We've got problems. We've got some social problems and we've got some attention problems. And so that's what I'm really interested in figuring out is... How do we navigate this and rein them back in socially and also try to help them manage their own focus better? Right. And that's been something within the gifted world we've talked about for a long time in terms of students who already struggle sometimes with managing their IQ, their high potential, their creative potential, much less you add into that their ability to maintain their attention, their ability to sustain and and working on those, uh, I guess Siegley would maybe call them the self-regulatory type Mm -hmm. skills that go along with this. Yeah, that's true. I've been thinking a lot about self-regulation and also mindfulness. I mean, as a scientist, Mm -hmm. I remember when I first heard about mindfulness, I remember thinking, "Mm, I don't know about this. This sounds like some, this is like yoga. Is this like, what is this, transcendental meditation? (laughs) So I I wasn't hostile to it, but I remember thinking, this doesn't sound very scientific to me. I don't know. Everyone take a breath. Okay. Uh, But but, um, actually, what's her name? Ja, I think her name is. She wrote a book. um, You may have heard of it. It's called Peak Mind. A fascinating book about... Um, how humans can be more present in their lives, mm. um, whether it's in a marriage or in a family situation or in a school setting or a work situation. How can we make sure our, our, our brains, our hearts, our minds are, are really here <laughs> in this moment? Uh, and as I read this book, I remember thinking, oh my gosh, this is part of the problem that our kids have, particularly our gifted students, is being present in the here and now. And so what she was proposing was this idea that uh, mindfulness is actually, it's neurology is what it is. Mm. And so she's done all kinds of research where she's put people in functional MRI machines and had them read books for a long period of time and then see what's going on in the brain, when do we switch tasks, when do we mind wander, all those kinds of things. And then they, there's things like she, she did things with pictures of people uh, that they were able to look at somehow in these machines where they could see pictures of a loved one, see pictures of conflict, and just see what's happening in the brain and, and look at what's going on neurologically. Um, and so I feel like... That allowed me to think, okay, I guess I'll try it. I guess I'll give it a go. 
It, it clearly has neurological gains. And so I do it with my kids now. And I teach juniors and seniors. And, you know, I've seen it done in elementary schools. So okay, everybody, everybody sit down. Everyone take three long breaths. Everybody close their eyes. And, and, and I thought that's never going to work in a high school setting. It absolutely works in a high school setting. And it really helps kids find uh, what Jar calls their flashlight. That, that step one of attention is, where is my attention right now? And so closing your eyes and having that few deep breaths neurologically helps kids find their flashlight, figure out what it feels like to be paying attention to their breathing. And then once they know what that feels like, they're aware when their attention is drifting away more. And so that, that's the kind of experimentation I'm doing at the moment in my classroom post-COVID. And let, let's talk more about that, because I think that's a, a great thing that you're bringing to the table as a teacher, a secondary teacher, which... You know, sometimes at these conferences, you know, that's where people start to get into, you know, how does this apply to me? So I want to, you know, affirm and, and edify our secondary teachers out there. You're, I guess you're saying and you're saying you've had a, a positive response to implementing these things in your classroom at a very practical level. I have. Um, so it's, it's partly that. So we all have these uh, classes, especially if it's if you're elementary post-recess or after lunch in high school is when, I mean, my kids come back from lunch and it is, it's Lord of the Flies. <laughs> <You know? laughs> or it can be. Man, I hope my principal has not listened to this, but you know, uh, it's not Lord of the Flies. No, it's a very well-managed classroom. Mm-hmm. Uh, sure. But they, <laughs> they, uh, they, I mean, they're just wired and their, their attention, their flashlight is swinging all over the place. And it takes five, 10 minutes just to, get it to where everybody's at least somewhat focused on a thing. So I've started doing that. I've started asking my kids to, um, you know, let's just take a breath. Let's just close our eyes. Let's find our flashlight. Let's just breathe. Let's just think about what it feels like. What does your diaphragm feel like? Your lungs. We're finding our flashlights. And then I've noticed what's happening is, like I used to be constantly on kids telling them, put your phone away, put your phone away, put your phone away. And it's an endless battle. I mean, I'm sure Mm. teachers listening to this will be, nodding their heads at this point, but uh, it's very, very difficult to manage. For me, I realized that me constantly berating them for having a phone out was just not having the desired effect because they put it away and they'd be straight back out again. So I've started teaching them what your phone is doing to your brain, you know, and it, just in short snippets and things. Uh, but also, instead of telling them, put the phone away, I'll go up to them and say, hey, are you distracted right now? <laughs> and they're like, oh, yeah, I am Mr. Wells. Sorry, I put my phone away. And so that, that just flipping that to a question was, or where's your attention right now? And they're like, oh, yeah, it's not on you. Sorry, or it's not on this book or it's not on this lab that we're doing. So just kind of changing the language a little bit to focus more on the kind of mindfulness and the neurology of learning, uh, I think has helped me a lot. And I'm still, I mean, I'm literally, I mean, I read that book in the spring and I'm just now implementing some of these things. But I'm starting to see, even with high school kids, uh, some, some gains for sure. Yeah, and that seems to be a common theme with my experience too when it comes to practices and gifted education is that sometimes it takes uh, a teacher who's willing to endure and have a little <laughs> self-efficacy with some of these things because sometimes these students, even if you know, hey, attention is the issue, I need to build attention, they may not be used to mm-hmm. or understand the why behind that, but it seems like you're, you're making some gains and illustrating what the whys are and having them participate and maybe get more comfortable with it. Yeah. So, yeah, one of the things I asked them at the start of the year was, uh, have you ever experienced phantom vibrate? Hmm. Phantom vibrate, we, I bet you've all experienced it, listeners, oh. uh, is where you feel like your phone buzzed in your pocket, so you check it, and it didn't. 
And that is, it happens to us all, 30 to, I think up to nearly 60% of the population now experiences this. And it's purely our brains craving the dopamine hit that we get from somebody having read one of our posts, shared something, commented on it. We like that, it feels good. It feels so good that our brains will prompt us to check our phones even when there hasn't been a notification. And so, wow. I mean, and so I was, I was showing them the research to my students, and they were like, blown away, Mr. Wells, that's crazy. Um, because they all experience it, you know? I was just speaking to somebody at lunch who said, yeah, happens on my Apple Watch all the time. I'll get a buzz, but there isn't anything there. And so the, the brain is kind of creating this itch that you need to scratch uh, to feel better. And that's just crazy. And so, again, it just goes to show that there's a whole army of neurologists behind our screens um, who make a lot of money from, you know, hacking our vulnerabilities. Uh, and, and when kids know that and they've got some understanding of what's going on, they think, no, I'm going to resist that. I'm going to stick it to the man by putting my phone away. I mean, I wish I could say I've got 100% compliance on that, but <laughs> that is not the case. <laughs> That's okay, but helping them understand the design behind why they're not paying attention, why they're not giving you their all in that moment. I, I, that, I feel like that's pretty powerful as an, an encouragement to teachers to maybe move into that space to help the students understand maybe what's going on there, think about their thinking or their lack of thinking perhaps a little bit. Yep. Yeah. Wow. Okay. So there's a lot to cover here. And again, I just love that you're bringing a, a practical teacher perspective in this. Tell us a little bit about your journey. How did you get here to be an award-winning teacher? You're presenting at GifteD. <laughs> Tell us a little bit about your, your journey in the midst of that. Wow. Okay. So how long we got? <laughs> Not long. I'll give you the condensed version. So I, I, my dad was a teacher his whole career. Um, Retired as a teacher, it was his first job, and then he retired as a teacher. Wow. Uh, and I remember growing up as a kid thinking, what am I going to do with my life? I knew there was one thing I definitely was never going to do with my life, and that was be a teacher. Because I saw the work he put in at night, and the grading, and the planning, and, and then he would have to go off to do field trips and be gone at weekends. And I thought, there's no way I'm being a teacher, because you know, they don't pay enough for that. <laughs> right, right. And, and just, I just saw the demand that it took, and so I thought, I'm never doing that. Uh, but then, um, about age 14, I, uh, I got bit by the sort of ecology bug. Um, this would, I don't know, well, I'm not going to betray my age here, but it was, it was a while ago. And I, um, uh, I just remember learning about the rainforest disappearing. Uh, my parents were both, they lived all over the world doing various jobs. And so I, my childhood was full of pictures of the world, uh, all kinds of crazy environments that were now, some of them were now gone. And so I remember thinking, I want to do something about that. I want to study the rainforest. I want to, that's what I want to do. So I went to the only place in the world at the time that, where you could do a degree in tropical environmental science. And that was uh, the University of Aberdeen, Scotland, which is ironically the most northerly and least tropical place you could go to college. <laughs> uh, but it was an English-speaking degree. All of these royal institutes for tropical research were there. So I did that. And that led to some research expeditions where um, we discovered some new species to science. Um, we rediscovered the, the existence of the Madagascar serpent eagle, which was thought to be extinct, but turns out not. Uh, and it just it blew my mind that there were these places in the world that were still there to be explored. Uh, and so that kind of expedition research really it got me doing some lectures afterwards, which I really enjoyed. Um, and I was invited to speak at the, uh, the Royal Geographical Society's annual conference for expedition planning. And I was the keynote speaker. I mean, this was like, I'm, I was maybe 
21 at this point. I mean, it's really young. They're heavy as a keynote. So I'm sitting on this wooden throne. I mean, it's this old building built in like the 17th century. There's this wooden throne that the keynote sits on. So I'm sitting there. I delivered my speech. I thought it went well. Next guy to come up is a teacher from Manchester, which is a sort of industrial town, a bit down on its luck economically, or at the time it was in the north of England. And he was teaching at a school where all of the students came from this government housing project. Uh, their graduation rate was, I mean, almost nobody went to college from this place, maybe 2% of these kids. Because uh, you can finish school at 16 in the UK and then leave. You're done. You don't have to go to college. And that's what all these kids did. They went and got jobs. But he was a geography teacher, and he got a grant from somewhere, I think it was Royal Geographical Society, to take some kids to the Sahara Desert to see sand dunes moving and to measure their movement and publish the research. Short trips, like one week. The last two nights, the kids had to go off in groups of three with a tent and a little emergency beacon, food and water, and what they had to do was write something about their experience. So these were kids who were struggling with literacy, no post-secondary plans at all, and I'm, and I'm thinking, I'm listening to this thinking, oh, that's pretty cute, what a great idea, how lovely. And he says, let me just read you some of these things. And he starts reading. I'm going to choke up again here. Oh, wow. He, he starts reading these, and I started crying. And I'm on this throne, <laughs> on the front of the Royal Geographical Society, and I'm ugly crying now. I mean, there's snot, there's, I mean, really crying, because it just hit me so hard. That, and then he said, let me tell you what these students are doing now. And they had all gone on to college, not just to do geography things. They did all kinds of stuff. It blew my mind, and I thought, what am I doing? watching fruit bats have sex all day, which is essentially what my research was at the time. Okay. Which is important work. It's important work. Um, we were proving the link between uh, rainforest... You don't have to justify it. It's okay. Fine. All right. <laughs> thank you, thank you. Uh, but I, I thought, you know... And I loved that work. It was my life's goal. It was my dream to do this kind of work. I had a job lined up in the World Wildlife Fund and a PhD program. I mean, it was... I was on that trajectory. But that moment on that meeting was... I, I'm in the wrong career field. I, I need to make a difference. I want to teach kids. I want to inspire kids. So, um, <laughs> oddly then, I became a pastor after that. And so I, I actually moved here to the States as a missionary. We started a church here in Houston uh, in 97. Still do that. Um, but that uh, working with kids and teenagers and just kind of trying to make a difference in people's lives. Uh, and ultimately, that led to me uh, applying for a job as a science teacher here in Houston. And... Um, I called my dad to say, hey, dad, <laughs> I've got, guess what I'm going to be doing starting in September? Right, what did teaching. he say? Oh, he laughed his head off. I mean, it was just straight up laughing on the phone for yeah. about three minutes. He thought it was hilarious. And yeah, I've not looked back. So I just, I love it. Uh, I, I know I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing. Um, and one of these days, I hope to take some kids to do real research somewhere just like that guy did. But yeah, well, it sounds like they're getting some pretty cool opportunities from a very well-versed and experienced person in terms of learning about offering that. And, and I know that not only is this a, a story for you in terms of uh, your students in the classroom, but also you, you bring up your children as well. Mm -hmm. Do you feel like that? You, you brought up how one is, I guess, identified as gifted and mm -hmm. one with a lot of potential there, obviously. Uh, do you feel like they impact your work to a degree as well? Oh, absolutely. Uh, raising children, I think, as teachers, we can all kind of say that changes how you teach. Because we have this kind of fixed idea of how kids are. Actually, it's more how should kids be. <laughs> mm -hmm. But as a teacher, you, as a parent, you get to experience how kids actually are. 
And, and that is informative. And if you're willing to listen and look at how your kids learn and just see them struggle with homework and projects and trying to get through on some difficult math concept or, you know, mm-hmm. it, it really makes you realize the, the importance of, of a teacher. Um, and it really made me more flexible. I mean, I, I certainly my, my approach to grading and all kinds of other things has changed fundamentally almost entirely because of having my own children and seeing them struggle in ways uh, with some teachers that honestly weren't very understanding uh, of the challenges they were facing. With my son's giftedness and ADD, he would often, he would do his project, uh, be beautiful, and then he would forget to bring it in the next day, and so now it's a 70. And, you know, as a parent, you look at that and think, what? He right. did all this work, he learned, he's, he's shown this mastery, what? And then he's checked out, you know, and he's like, the next time a project comes around, he really can't be bothered. And so, you know, it's just one of those things where that, that was a moment for me where I thought, I, I need to reapproach how I do deadlines and how, or even if I penalize late work, mm-hmm. how am I going to try and incentivize kids to to get things in on time without just this arbitrary deduction in points. So, yeah, I would say raising kids has certainly um, has certainly changed the way I teach, for sure. Well, one of the things that you've uh, you've actually already presented on, I believe, here at uh, Gift Ed is the grading mm. procedures of teachers. Why do you think that? You just kind of explained how it applied to you, but uh, why do you think that resonates with other teachers? Well, I think, um, so post-COVID, again, uh, I mean, boy, it took, it's still taking a long time, I think, for kids to get back on track, to relearn how to do school and be a student. Um, deadlines meant nothing for a few years, and now they're back. But the kids are yeah, paying attention. It, you really got to be here, pay attention to first-time instruction. But they haven't had to do that for mm. so long. So they've gotten some bad habits. Um, and so for me, I, I mean, I realized pretty early in my career, I was working in the poorest school at the time, the lowest income school in the whole district in here in Houston, ISD, um, with some kids who were, I mean, all of them were below the poverty line. Um, but, you know, some of them were more comfortable than others. Um, and what I was noticing was that when kids were failing my classes, it wasn't because they didn't know anything. It was because they weren't there that day. They were working or they were looking after a sibling or... Um, you know, something had happened in the chaotic lives that they had uh, where they just weren't there for that thing. And so I put a zero in the gray book and move on, you know, and you can make it up maybe, but maybe not. And then as I looked at my grade book at the end of those grading periods, I looked at it and thought, wait, look at who's failing here. It's, it's not kids who don't know anything. They're doing okay on tests when they're here, but they're not here. So what am I measuring exactly? What am I reporting? And then as I looked even deeper, I thought, wait, I think I'm grading income. I think I'm grading race. I think I'm grading, you know, um, uh, parental background. I'm grading things that have got nothing to do with learning, but my grade book is telling a very different story about these kids. And so that kind of got me on this sort of (laughs) another path of little research and reading about how can we do this differently. So I've been toying with and experimenting with uh, some versions of mastery learning or standards-based learning is what it's sometimes called, just different ways where we can be more respectful of students and really the real world, which is all about flexible deadlines. I mean, I I can't tell you the number of times I've forgotten to turn in some sped paperwork. I didn't get fired. (laughs) Right, I just got a little reprimand. uh, Until they listen to this podcast. That's true, here I am again. I'm just betraying all my secrets (laughs) here. Yeah, so, you know, it's... There are other ways that we can... Well, first of all, we need to question 
our practices. And I had never done that. I, I just kind of adopted whatever my mentor teacher in my first year told me to do. You gotta have four or more of these major grades. You gotta have a bunch of these and some of those. Um, and then this is how you grade. And then the number is what it is and you move on and you give them a week or so to make something up if they're absent and that's it. And so I never questioned any of that. I just rolled with it. Never questioned everything being zero to 100. Never questioned it. Hmm. Until I looked at it and thought, wait a second, only 30 points out of 100 count for anything. The scales are already tipped towards failure, heavily. So if a kid gets one zero in the grade book, that's it for them because it's brought this tiny little margin of error. They're way outside of it now and they've got very little hope of recovery. So it kind of it readjusted my views on, uh, on zeros and late work. I think of it like um, you know, temperature, average temperature. If you want to get the average temperature of Houston right now, let's say, what, 60s this week, I think. You say, let's do Monday through Friday. Let's say it's 60s every day. The average for these five days is 60. But if, let's say, today, is it Wednesday? Yeah, I think it's Wednesday. <laughs> yeah. Today, let's say the temperature gauge doesn't work. We don't get a recording. Well, what's the average temperature now this week? Well, if we put in a zero for that, that's what we're saying is that's zero degrees Fahrenheit today. It's cold, maybe, but it's not that cold, right? And now we've got this average that's completely meaningless and useless. It doesn't tell the truth about the average temperature. So it just really got me thinking about, um, you know, the power of zeros, especially with gifted kids who often struggle with organization. Um, you know, they're often twice exceptional, like my son was, who maybe he did do a great job with the work, but then he forgot it and didn't turn it in. And so, uh, yeah, I think parenting and a little bit of research has together combined to help me want to set fire to my current grading policies and try some different things. So that sense of reflectiveness, that sense of being willing to just review your practices in a way that I feel like is very student-centered and, and trying to find out how do I evaluate and provide feedback to my students in a meaningful way as opposed to uh, use grades as almost like a, a punitive measure yeah. of, of compliance or other factors. Yeah, so I mean, kids cheat when they can't afford to fail. Right. I mean, that's that is that's why they cheat, because they like I cannot afford whatever number I'll get if I don't turn this in. I don't want that number, but I don't know what I'm doing. So I'm going to cheat. And so, you know, why, how can we eliminate that pressure to copy? We don't really call it copying anymore. It's collaboration now, I think. But uh, that's right. You know, <laughs> how can we how can we remove that? Let kids practice, take some risks. I remember reading Dweck's research on mindset years ago and thinking, yeah, I want kids that will keep trying invest some effort, but like from my son informed me, like for example, he, he got like a 64 or something on a test because he forgot it was on, didn't prepare. And then, um, you know, the teacher said, it's fine, David, you can, oh, I just named him, sorry, David, if he's listening to this. Anyway, um, <laughs> you can take this again, right? We can do a retake. First of all, come to a tutorial. Uh, second of all, do all your test corrections. And then you can redo the test for a 70. And so my gifted ADD child is looking at that thinking, wait, I've got a 64 right now, and I can do all this work for a 70. Hmm. No thank you. Yeah. And so that, he just checked out there was no incentive to put any extra effort in there at all. If he could have got a 100, then he would have invested the effort. But it wasn't worth it. And I think so. sometimes our current grading practices, they, are, they actually they, they, they create a fixed mindset for kids. And they do the exact opposite of what we want. And we often look at instruction being the key to uh, increasing a growth mindset. But I think assessment is the key hmm. to getting a growth mindset from kids. 
Well, you're doing all sorts of exciting things here at Give Dad. You're also going to be doing a science experiment as a part of one of your presentations. <laughs> yeah. uh, you described it as, let's rock their world by showing them scientific phenomena that defy easy explanations. What are you talking about? <laughs> we're going to set fire to this hotel. No, we're not going to do that. Um, I hope not. Actually, no flames. I think I'm not allowed to here. Sometimes I'm allowed to do flames, but not this time. Uh, no, we're going to do a bunch of demos, just quick little demonstrations um, where it's one of those deals where you ask the kid, what do you think is going to happen? And oftentimes our gifted students have a very, let's say, overinflated sense of their own rightness about things sometimes. Mm. You know, they're pretty clear about how things work and how the world works and how science works. And so it, it's great sometimes to just burst that bubble with something that's very counterintuitive. We call them discrepant events. Uh, so I'm going to be doing uh, 10 or 12 little quick discrepant events uh, where the teachers in the room are going to be able to put their student hats on, pretend they're a kid in the room, and kind of think about what how their kids would experience this kind of phenomena and how they might explain it. And then we'll kind of talk about the science of what's actually going on. So it's going to be fun. Yeah. And do you do that sort of work with your kids in your classroom? I do. I do. One of my favorite activities I do with them, actually, it's not really a, a discrepant event, but I burn a Cheeto on day one. Okay. You just... Just open set up a bag of Cheeto. Yeah, exactly. Chester's there crying in the background. That's right. Yeah. That's right. I just I stick a I impale it on a, a little paper clip and then a cigarette lighter, light that thing, and I ask them. I was like, "What? So what's going on here?" I said, "Well, it's burning." Okay. What do you mean burning? What's happening in this experiment? I'm like, well, I mean, there's there's heat. Yes, there's heat and there's light. Okay, where did that come from? And so we kind of go back through kind of probing questions to that light that we're seeing. That's sunlight, but it's not sunlight from today. It's sunlight that was captured by a plant, corn, <laughs> presumably, for all those, you know, last year, probably, when it was harvested. And then it, it used that sunlight to make bonds between carbons, hydrogens, and oxygens to make the carbohydrates and fats and oils that go into a Cheeto. And it's stored as potential energy. And then when you initiate that reaction, you get the sunlight back. Wow. And so then I hold up a piece of coal. When this burns, when was the sun shining that is being released now. And then we talk about fossil fuel. So it's just, yeah, I love, I love doing little quick hooks like that that are sort of a little counterintuitive, a little bit discrepant that force them to think. Right. And again, right. it's that idea of the flashlight. Let's get them off of whatever their brains are on right now as they walk into my room into, okay, this is what we're going to be learning about. Oh, this is kind of interesting. Mm -hmm. That's the goal. Anyway, I wish I could say I do it every day, but I'm starting to compile a list of things I can do. <laughs> there you go. And, and I think that's powerful too. I feel like there's this element of design thinking within that of getting kids to examine something deeper than they would at first glance, which I, I would imagine really resonates mm -hmm. with uh, gifted populations out there to be able to dive deeper into something, maybe make something that you pass by or don't think of uh, in, a, in a Cheeto. I mean, <laughs> you have me thinking right now, <laughs> sunlight coming from a Cheeto. It's that's well, awesome. And, I mean, think about how long it burns. I mean, it burns for a surprisingly long time. If you try this, this thing will burn for minutes, just one Cheeto. And so the kids are so stunned by that. And I said, so, what you, so think about all the energy that we're seeing, all this heat and all this light in one Cheeto. How many Cheetos are in a bag? Hmm. How many bags of Cheetos do you eat in a day? What if you ate nothing but eat Cheetos for the rest of your life? And they'd be like, oh my gosh, we'd be, we'd be huge. Yeah, all that stored energy that you're putting into your body. <laughs> that's what's powering your body and you don't use it all. Where's the rest go? Hmm. You store it on your butt or your belly or yeah. wherever it goes. That's just the scientific approach here. Sorry, yeah, that's you the know, scientific that's term. Just, yeah, that's how, how we do <laughs> um, Well, I think, uh, again, I think all of this is so encouraging, not that... Uh, you, 
uh, you, you, you clearly have a lot of experience with diving into the research, diving into these books, getting informed as a teacher, applying it. And I feel like that's going to be so meaningful to teachers uh, listening to this. Any other words of encouragement to teachers out there who might be a, a secondary science teacher, or just a teacher of, of gifted students in terms of um, just kind of processing all this and making some next steps from here? I, I think the two most important things we can do with gifted students right now is reconnect them socially to one another and to whoever is in your room. You may have an exclusive group of gifted kids. If you teach secondary, you're going to have them scattered all over the place. And they already feel a little kind of disconnected from normal populations. And it might, you might just have one kid in the room. So it's going to require a lot of effort on our teachers' part post-COVID to reconnect those kids relationally. We are hardwired for human connection, but we kind of forgot that. And for our teenagers, I mean, that was during a critical developmental time, COVID hit them. When they were forming the social architecture of their brain, it's broken and we got to fix it. So I would, I would encourage teachers to do everything you can to make learning social. Get them talking, get them arguing respectfully, disagreeing, um, you know, all of those kinds of things, working together in groups. And then the other thing I think is um, our attention is being hacked uh, just like never before in terms of the information overload. Uh, I remember reading some stat that we, we absorb about 74 gigabytes of data per day now into our brains. We process that. 500 years ago, it's estimated that that's what the average human absorbed in a lifetime. Wow. So we're getting a lifetime's worth of information suckered into our brains every day. And our gifted kids, I mean, they don't know what to do with that. They find it sometimes hard to manage all of the inputs. And I think the role of the teacher is very important there in helping them keep that focus on one thing at a time, being present in this learning moment so they really deeply learn what they need to learn. So if you can do those two things, you can gain their attention, hook their attention, keep it, and then connect them socially, I think, I think we'll, be, we'll be fixing a lot of the problems that we've inherited after COVID. As we start to kind of wind down a little bit here, I've got my fast five questions to learn a little bit about you. The point isn't oh to dive too deep. It's just to kind of move quickly into some questions to make you, uh, make you a fun, relatable person here. You've already kind of shown that throughout oh this. Uh, okay, question number one. You've got a Saturday to do anything. What do you do and why? Ooh, Saturday to do anything. Oh, my goodness. It's like hard to even imagine It's really educators. hard because yeah. I, I mean, uh, this full disclosure here, I, I find it hard to relax. I don't know if you noticed the sort of hyperness of me. Right? <laughs> I find it difficult to relax. Um, I mean, I am, I am English. I enjoy watching the Premier League. So if there's a game on on a Saturday, okay. that, that is one of the things I like to do during soccer season, football season, is to watch a game. So this must be a big time for you with the World Cup going on. Yeah, I can't believe I'm even here, to be honest. Really? Yes. Wow. There you go. All right, question number two. If you had to describe yourself as a cartoon character or TV show character, who would it be and why? A cartoon character or a TV show character? Who would it be and why? Um, well, my, some, my kids think I've got a lot of SpongeBob in me. Oh, really? Actually. Yes, mm -hmm. there's some foolishness and, and some willingness to take risks. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's, that's probably me. Uh, you know, and I, like, I do like to have fun. I mean, a classroom should, learning should be fun and enjoyable. So I think my gut reaction would be I'm probably a SpongeBob. Yeah, and living in a pineapple is kind of a giveaway as well. Well, true, that's is also yeah. that. Very good. <laughs> Question number three. If you could tell an earlier version of yourself one thing about how you learn, what would you tell them? Ooh, an earlier version of myself, one thing about how I learn. Um, I, would, I would tell them to, oh gosh, that's a really great question. Okay, Matt Wells, back in the day, what did you need to know? <laughs> Before you were studying Madagascar, yeah, exactly, all the eagles. Things. I think I would say, 
I would say probably to hold things lightly. And, and that sounds weird in terms of learning, but I would really go down a rabbit hole as a kid. I mean, I, would, I was one of those kids that would obsess over a thing and just pursue that to the end and ignore everything else. So I would say to, to you know, 12-year-old Matt Wells, just let it go, man. Let yeah. it go. Try something else. All right. Very good. Uh, question number four. Who has been an inspiration in your educational career? An inspiration in my educational career? Oh, wow. Um, gosh, I've had been so many people. Um, I mean, when you first said it, I, I, my mind immediately went yeah. back to my very first uh, mentor that I had. And when I was a brand new teacher uh, in, in a, an inner city school, teaching in a portable trying to do science without any lab equipment or anything. I had this mentor teacher. She was wonderful. Um, and I remember uh, ranting and ranting and ranting about how difficult it was to work with these kids. They can't speak English. They can't, they don't bring a pencil. They don't, uh, all these expectations I had about what kids should be. And she just, I remember she just listened to me. And, and then when I stopped, she said, are you done? And I said, yeah, I'm done. And she said, Matthew. If there's a behavior that you want to see in your classroom, you have to teach it. And it just, it rocked my world. And I would say that's probably one thing that stuck with me more than anything else. So I'd have to say that my mentor teacher, Deodis Belgum, uh, she, she, more than anybody else, I think inspired me <laughs> to, be, to, to, to keep going. That's, that's amazing. Uh, in question five, if you had to tell teachers to do one thing to develop student potential, what would it be? Ooh, one thing to they develop gotta do one thing. student potential. One thing to do student... Hmm. Okay, so um, I think you have to validate. You've got to validate whatever their interest is. And it could be weird. I mean, I remember speaking to one kid who was obsessed with underwater welding. Underwater Literally, underwater welding. welding. Underwater welding was the thing. Uh, that was what they were interested in. And they, that was it. That's what they wanted to do. And that was, everything was related to that. All of their work was related to underwater welding. And I remember thinking, oh, you need to widen your horizons. Don't, don't narrow yourself down. Uh, that's the advice I was just about to give to me, actually. But anyway, for this kid, <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I would say just validate it. If they've got a thing that they're into, let, just roll with it. Encourage it because who knows where it'll lead them. Great, great advice. Matt, how can we find you out there in the universe if people want to find out more about the great award-winning science teacher? <laughs> I am on Twitter. I don't do a whole lot on there, but I am on Twitter as at Pliny Wells. Um, and then people can email me if they want to at PlinyWells at gmail.com. Very good. Thanks again to our guest, Matt Wells. We're so glad you could join us here today. If you're interested in learning more about today's guest and their work, check out the links included with this podcast post. And if you're not yet a member of the Texas Association for the Gifted and Talented, we hope you'll join our community by visiting txgifted.org and clicking the Join tab. Renzuli Learning is proud to support the Texas Association for the Gifted, their podcast and gifted education nationwide. Be sure to visit our website at RanzuliLearning.com and sign up for your free trial to experience firsthand how we deliver a rigorous, personalized learning environment for all students pre-K through 12, and how we align our resources to the TEKS and provide student-driven project-based learning that unpacks the natural passions and abilities in all children.